Welcome to the Stand By My Servants podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Mark D. Ogletree, professor of church history and doctrine at Brigham Young University, explores the lives and teachings of the members of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. As we examine the lives and teachings of these leaders, our lives can be edified, enriched, and spiritually strengthened. Now here is your host, Dr. Mark D. Ogletree. So, and Rob, this is fun for me, but you're new here on our campus at BYU, so tell us a little bit about your life and what, uh, how, how, you, how you ended up here. I have a very windy career path <laughs> that I felt kind of bad about until I read a book called uh, Range by David Epstein, and now I feel like I'm just well-rounded <laughs> instead of just bad at holding down a job or not very good at anything. I began my career as an attorney and an executive for 10 years, left to teach seminary and institute. That had been sort of a dream of mine and was blessed to do that in my hometown of Auburn, Washington, and then felt prompted to apply for a job at BYU-Idaho, which miraculously I got and went there in 2004. Wow. Just as Elder Bednar got there, right? Uh, no, no, no so just he, as he was leaving, Just right? as he was leaving. So That's I was right. his last round of hires. So, in fact, that was his question for me in the interview was, uh, Stanford Law School, uh, teaching religion. Tell me about that. <laughs> yeah. uh, it was right. an unusual career path. Um, and then after five years there, they, I got invited to be over a, a brand new program with 49 students in a pilot phase called Pathway. Wow. And oversaw that in online learning, uh, taking Elder Gilbert's spot for four years, uh, and then was called to be uh, a mission president, a mission leader with my wife. And then I uh, got back, got called into the administration again. So I ended up spending eight years and two different stints in the administration. Then the, the rest of the time I got to teach. And I got to focus on learning and teaching, too. Right. And along the way, got to write some books, working with Elder Hales and his book before this one, and then co-authoring this one with Henry. Uh, and by the way, just for frame of reference, if I ever say Henry, I'm talking about Henry J., my friend and co-author and former right. president of BYU-Idaho. Yes. I, would, I would never call President Henry B. <laughs> Iring Henry, both because it would be wildly inappropriate and because that's not what his friends call him. They call him Hal. Right. Oh, um, exactly. And then uh, in the last unexpected uh, career twist. Uh, three of us were invited to come uh, by the Commissioner of Education from BYU-Idaho to BYU, and I've loved it. The colleagues like you have been just so gracious in welcoming us. Well, we are, we are so glad you're here. I, this is my privilege. I got to spend some time with uh, with Phil Allred yesterday, and now you today, and and uh, get to see Ross all the time in, in this hallway, so it's great. So, Okay, so first of all, uh, I think it'd be fascinating, Rob, just to tell us how you became involved in writing this book about President Irene's life with Henry J. So I was team teaching a, a disciple leadership class with Henry J. Yeah. And had become friends with him. And he was just so kind and would come and sit down in my office and we'd talk. I'd ask him to review a book that became Digging Deeper for Deseret News. And he gave me some feedback and, and then closed the door and said, I want you to be a co-author with me on a book about Elder Hales. And then yeah. he described the exact approach we later took with President Iring, but didn't get to take with Elder Hales. Right. Uh, and so I began, uh, and, and it was to integrate kind of a teachings of into a biography. Um, right. And in the end, we didn't do that with Elder Hales, but I got to work with Elder Hales on the book he did produce called Return. Um, uh, but then... 
I had told Henry, if you ever do get to do this for your father, I, I'd be happy to help. I wasn't saying make me co-author, but like, you know, I'd be a research grunt. I'd love to be involved, right. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, one day sitting in President's Council at BYU-Idaho, he gave me a note with one word that just said co-author question mark. So that note is, sits in the uh, my copy of the book signed by President Eyring. Yeah. has uh, a sweet, sweet memory. So that's, uh, but still to me. In fact, when I would interview members of the 12 and others, they all, not all of them, but several would say like, and how are you working on this? And I'm like, I know I have the same question. I'm from Auburn. I don't know people. I don't, I, I don't know. I just, I'm somehow here. So it was really a very surreal experience for me because I did not run in those circles at all. Yeah. Well, what an, as you said, what an incredible opportunity and experience for you. So... Let's talk a little bit about the, the, the way the book came to be, uh, Rob, because I know, as I understand it, that it was you that were able to go through, through some of President Irene's journals and, and some other records, probably, uh, do some interviews. So tell us about that process and what that was like. So uh, my duties included interviewing President Irene and then eventually interviewing others, both of those that he was reluctant to do, and then inter- uh, reading every entry in his journals and then reading all of his talks. Uh, and then working together with Henry. But I would say Henry did more of the writing than, than I did. Yeah. Um, and it was so sweet. One time, he, he, President Eyring struggled so much uh, with the concept of a biography being written about him. In I, fact, think, I think most of them do, right? They don't really want this, right? <laughs> I, 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 I led with that in my first interview with him to say, President, I've, I've read enough of your talks to know this has got to make you very uncomfortable. <laughs> and he went off for like 15 minutes. Oh, you're not kidding me. I don't know whether to make you wait till you know 50 years or 100 years after my death. To, and went on for a while and then said, but don't let anything I said just now slow you down. The Spirit's born witness to me that this needs to happen. So I think that's the wow. only way this was possible that the God God had revealed to a prophet through the Spirit that this thing that was going to shine a light on him, which spotlight he had tried to avoid his whole life, was something that God wanted. But w- once he was calling somebody in the church history department to ask for something for me, and he said, uh, "My my son Henry and this fellow Rob are working on this um, this." Uh, you know, this, that, that project I told you, he couldn't say biography. It just like didn't want to say it. couldn't come out of his lips. So, uh, but on the other hand, he was very free. So I got to, I got to interview him probably 20 times. And then he was very free with his journals yes. and very open in the interviews. Uh, and so I would sit there at night with a copy. He, they made multiple bound copies for the children uh, with a copy of, of his journals thinking, how am I reading Henry B. Eyring's journal? This is just amazing, but he just was completely transparent. And his journals, I'm guessing, are quite meticulous, meaning specific, great records there, because here he's kept, you know, he's been, you know, outspoken about, yeah, every night, every night I, I record something. They were daily. Yeah. And he was he was busy, and the journal entries were daily. Yeah. So what was the great experience for you as you're reading through this apostle, this prophet, seer, and revelator's journal? What are you learning about him as a human, as a disciple of Christ, as you're really having an opportunity that maybe a lot of his own family hasn't even had to go read through those journals, right? I think I read through them before Henry did. I'm like, Henry, <laughs> is your father, why am I? This is your dad. <laughs> right. um, but he, from the earliest journals that I read, was always very intentional about his discipleship 
and spiritual growth and improvement mm. and, and figuring out what he needed to do differently. Mm. And just the degree of intentionality he brings to his discipleship was breathtaking for me and wow. inspiring right. to think, wow, I got to be less casual about just assuming spiritual growth will come through life experiences. That, that if, if I want to be the person the Lord needs me to be and wants me to become, I need to be more intentional about seeking his help, seeking direction, making plans about what I can do to change and grow. That's, that was just a common theme for me running throughout his journals. That's so interesting. His son, Matt, uh, lives in our stake. And, and Matt was telling me once, he said, you can set an atomic clock to my dad's life. You know, every day it starts with, you know, he wakes up at this time. He, has, he reads his scriptures at this time. And then it just goes like that through the day. But I love the, your uh, comment about intentionality. I mean, it sounds like this is just a pursuit of his um, now, to become a disciple of Christ. Now, that said, because <laughs> you could set a clock and because he was so hardworking, and very task-oriented. One of the aha moments that came for me is the story, I think, I'm pretty sure we included uh, in the biography, of his home teacher back in the day in Rexburg, a dry farmer, uh, telling him how you need to get up from behind your desk, he's president of Ricks College, right. and walk the campus. And he humbly, dutifully nods and says he will. And a few months later, uh, Roy, I think it's Roy Moore, comes back again. And says, you must not be doing it because the Spirit's still telling me. So he says, okay, okay. And then that night or the next night, he says, I got up and I walked around the campus. And I had some good conversations with people. But I didn't get so much done. Mm. So it was interesting and telling to me to see that, like I feel I've often been, he was really in a productive mode. Right. Of, and, and so this different approach was hard for him. And mm. he sort of drug his feet. Now, fast forward to, you know, decades. I sneak my daughter in, which was probably inappropriate because I hadn't <laughs> asked in advance, may I bring my daughter? But right. he was cool about it. But I'm still feeling a little sheepish that I've snuck my daughter in to meet <laughs> the first counselor in the first presidency. And so right. as soon as they've had a chance to meet, I'm kind of you know, wanting to send her on her way. Also, I want him to be not feel inhibited in any way, and we've got limited time together. Sure. And he's still asking her questions. He keeps her there like 15 minutes, and he can read me like a book. So after she's gone, he explains to me, I just, I just wanted to see, I was just probing to see if there was anything I could help with. Oh, wow. That's an apostolic transformation. Yeah. Or a disciple's transformation from, I mean, think of it. He's the first counselor in the first presidency at the time when President Monson was, you know, um, needed his help a yes. lot. There, there were a few people of, you know, in the world with more weight on their shoulders. He's got an unannounced guest. He's busy. And instead of being resentful that he's spending some of his precious time chatting with somebody he didn't plan to, he instead seems to assume there's maybe a reason she's in his office and wonders, is there something I can do for I'm her? I'm going to find that out. Yeah. So to me, that was the the full transformation from the guy focused on his to-do list that Roy Moore needed to, that the spirit needed to work through the home teacher to get yeah. the message to this brilliant young college president. Yeah. But cool. he took it to heart. I love that. And I know that, that some of that type of connection to other people, he learned from his dad. You know, just his dad was such an amazing person uh, himself. Let's talk about that just for a second. You know, we, 
I was telling you before we started to, this interview that it's always intriguing. You know, I'm sure there are apostles who have been athletes, and maybe they share some of their experiences about that. Obviously, President Udorf. We've had a lot of uh, airplane stories over the last 20 years, but it, I've I've told my students watch President Eyring. He will he will bring his dad into his talks mm. quite a bit. You could tell that his father had such an influence on him. What are some things, Rob, you may be able to say about that relationship? And I'm not sure if you would have spoken much about it, but I know at the very beginning of the book you talk about, you know, the heritage and his his relationships and the difference between Mildred and Henry in terms of parents and some of those things. But is there anything there that you may recall regarding that influence? Yeah, it's, Mildred and Henry, it's an interesting combination. You might have assumed that as the scientist that Henry would be the more skeptical of the two, but his mother was really tight-lipped with praise. Yeah. Um, and uh, and really pointed him to God as the source of affirmation of who you are, not... Not from me. Not from me, right? Yeah. So she... Uh, he, he was clear about that. She squeezed his arm as they went through the line when he got his, his um, doctorate at Harvard, and that was like one of the greatest compliments he received from her was her squeezing Did his he, arm. Right? Got the arm squeeze. And wow, wow, you know, imagine having Henry B. Eyring as a child. There would be a whole lot to praise. Right. But so her, uh, she thought praise was the devil's poison. Yeah. On the other hand, um, his father, who was truly a Nobel caliber scientist in, right. in a different time with maybe a little less prejudice against members of the church he might well have won the nobel right he, he was that good so this amazingly brilliant mind was also not to buy into stereotypes but remarkably upbeat kind optimistic uh, a, a builder people uh, and maybe he saw the need to compliment his wife and, and together <laughs> they were the complete package right but so it's uh, i think from his father he inherits this really interesting combination of brilliance and scientific precision, but also of, of building. And, and for me, and I love all of the prophets, seers, and revelators, and general officers, and general authorities of the church, but for me, President Eyring is especially effective in inspiring me to want to do and be better without me feeling beaten down. Yeah. And I, yeah. I, I'd lay some of that at the feet of his father. Yeah. That's, that's, that's my impression. It, my, my friend Henry could speak to that better, but I, I, right. I think he's somewhat indebted to his father and to the spirit for that capacity to teach in that way. I, I would agree. And, and unlike some of those stereotypes that you mentioned, he, as a scientist, he seemed to have this incredible social, social side and always wanting to learn things from other people and very humble, very meek. And yeah, I think our, but... our present Irene really demonstrates uh, some of those traits. Here's another thought, Rob. I tell our students to look for this as we're talking in our Living Prophets class for this pattern. It seems like most of our apostles have made public in some way uh, what I would call kind of a seminal spiritual experience during their adolescent years. You know, something that happens during their adolescent years that kind of propels them on that track of discipleship. and would you say, is there something there, I mean, for President Irene, I know that the move from Princeton, New Jersey to, to Salt Lake when he was 13, uh, there, were some, there were some things that came from that experience that I think propelled him more into the, the Book of Mormon. But is there anything that stands out in your mind? It's a really good question. I, and I, I'm, I'm uh, embarrassed because I can't 
uh, I'm not sure if I'm just not remembering well. Yeah. Or if, in fact, his life is one that, that is void of a singular spiritual experience as in childhood or youth that, sure. that is a catalyst. Right. Certainly has some important experiences along the way. But uh, if when I would talk to him about this, he felt that both... When I would talk to him about this, he felt that both his time in New Jersey and his time in Utah prepared him for what would come. Right. Um, and, and prepared him as a disciple. That right. there were benefits to being out there. We're talking about home-centered church, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> wow, that's they got what a they, blackboard in the basement, right? right? That's what they had in Princeton. A- absolutely. And it makes you stand up for truth. But he also, he, he did not speak ill of living in Utah. In fact, he spoke highly of that and the blessings and benefits he got there. In fact, there, as a young priest, he's got a, a bishop who takes him along under his wing to do welfare visits. Right. The, a future apostle, Alvin R. Dyer, takes his priest, who's going to be a future member of the presiding bishopric, the Twelve, and the First Presidency, and he gets some opportunities he would not have had in Princeton to be taught and and uh, I think that was a real seminal type of experience. His relationship with Bishop Dyer, it seems like they were very close. And and uh, it feels like, you know, in some way the bishop knew that, okay, this, this young man's going somewhere. Now, I have one other, and I, I'm not at all I'm sh- sure I'm right. In fact, I, President Eyring might disagree with me. So yeah. uh, I'll just throw it out there. But he, he had a unique uh, situation when they were only during the Korean War allowing one missionary per ward. Alvin R. Dyer has been called as a mission president now. Right. Asks young Hal Iring if he would be the missionary. So this is fundamentally different than a young man today where the prophet has invited those all those young men who are able and, and, and worthy to serve a mission as a priest of duty. That was not the case then. Right. So an award packed with priests only one would get to go, and he's Per asked, year, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah per year. So uh, he says no, but he says no and has this difficult conversation with his uncle Spencer W. Kimball afterwards. He says no really based on what his mother has done and not, not having asked there. Right. And, you know, when I asked him if that influenced him going forward, at first he said, no, it didn't. But then mm. as he reflected on it, it seemed like maybe that had an impact. Now, Henry disagrees with me. Henry doesn't think it was a mistake for him to not go. And I'm not saying it was. Yeah. But for me, one of my favorite quotes, I'll, I'll have to, I'll, I'll pull it up. So just to refresh you uh, on this story, his, he asked his mother about what he should do. And he's in a enrolled in an ROTC program and if he goes on a mission he won't get to finish that and he and then at a time where there's a draft he might get drafted and not as an officer right and his mother knows people have been killed in the Korean War she's worried that if he goes on a mission the odds of getting drafted and not going in as an officer are higher and thus the odds of him being killed are higher right so she feels strongly that he needs to finish his ROTC training at college um and, and so he tells the bishop, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to give the opportunity to somebody else. Mm. Um, I, again, I, so great things come from him going down the path he does go. Right. It's, it's not like he goes off and smokes. And, right? I mean, <laughs> so he gets some great opportunities in the military because of it that I think are preparatory. Mm-hmm. Um, so Henry and I debate whether or not this was, was pivotal or, yes. or not. But he later said, of, of all the things I read... This one stood out to me from a 1977 little 
piece in the end sign, the old I have a question section. Oh, yeah. So someone's asked a question, and it really doesn't matter what the question is. His, I don't want to distract from the answer to that question. But he says, and, and for me, this, this is what I saw as a common thread running throughout his life. And whether it was triggered by this event or a series of events or where he got this. But by age, by 1977, he's got it. Um, mm. In fact, there is one other pivotal event just before this that I'll, I'll mention. I have no hope of acting wisely if my first and overriding objective is to, and when I share this with my students, I just put a blank and say, it doesn't really matter what you put in the blank here if it's not serving God and building his kingdom or whatever. Sure. But, but he says, make money. But if my main motive is to please God, I will be sensitive to the spirit as it warns me away from what would displease him. Once I've decided I want eternal life more than business success, he says here, but it could be athletic, artistic, scientific, any other kind of success. I will have crossed the great gulf between wanting to know what God would permit and trying to do what he would prefer. Oh, wow. What he would prefer. I, oh, my that, gosh. That, that would have been my next choice for a title of the book, What, what God Prefers. And, I mean, you could, you could put that... You know, one day, years from now, when President Eyring passes away, you could put that on his tombstone. He tried to do what God preferred. preferred. Wow. And, and it, so later at Rick's College, when you're in this awkward situation where they don't tell you how long you're there and they don't guarantee you any kind of job when you're done, he's been there for, you know, six years or something like that. And he gets not just any offer, but he gets an offer to be an executive at Black & Decker, gets an offer to be a right-hand guy, you know, not not like a bag carrier, but, you know, <laughs> a, a collaborator with a, a business mind. I look him up. He, he's named in some lists as one of the top three American business minds of the 20th century, this fellow. Wow. These are the choices President Eyring has to make. And when he calls his uncle and, and Marion G. Romney's on the line, too, they say like, wow, that's a tough choice. <laughs> but we'll know where to find you if we want you. You know, that sounds like it'll be. They don't tell him. Well, if you're righteous, you stay here. Right. Uh, and he has to pray and agonize about this. But I think he goes from asking what God would permit to what God would prefer. And in his case, God preferred that he stayed. After that, the Teton Dam breaks. And he has an experience he would not have had there. Right. I believe preparatory for him serving in the first uh, presidency and presiding bishop. Right. right. I mean, think of what are the odds of dealing with a natural disaster in Rexburg, Idaho, on that scale? Right. But he gets hands-on experience dealing with that. That's so interesting, Rob. In fact, just a little side window, but as you said that, it made me think of two people. It made me think of President Kimball, mm. who dealt with a huge flood in his area in Arizona. And not long after that, he was called to be an apostle. And then Elder Stevenson, in the pres well, yeah, in the presiding bishopric, is uh, sent over to Japan. Well, he's in Japan as an er in the area of presidency. Huge tsunami there. And then right after that, he's called into the presiding bishopric. You know? So this is another theme that I noticed, uh, and it was really fun to, to talk with President Eyring, review things from his journal, from his life, and sort of together connect the dots. Yeah. And he would periodically say, God plays infinite dimensional chess. Oh, wow. And I love that line. <laughs> I love how you could see God preparing him to be the first chair of the church, church's board of trustees at a time when pathway is in, it, in its infinite stages. Yes. And he's, 
he's maybe a little more prone to notice what's not going to work about a program with that <laughs> scientific training from his father yeah. and what is going to work. And yet he was saying, go faster. Wow. He was pushing hard. But you can trace back stuff that happened when he's 22. Mm. I, I would talk to him and say, wow, we talked to people who are over 50 about online learning. And they say, oh, so you just video them and stream that? And at BYU-Idaho, we'd kind of bristle because we had a collaborative asynchronous model that still do where students interact with each other in meaningful ways, even though, but they're, they're not just watching a video. Right. And President Iron was like the only person I talked to over 50 who got that. And he said, oh, no, no, no. Why would you do that? The Internet is a tool that lets people collaborate in a noble cause across space and time. I didn't talk to anybody else over 50 who thought that way, but he right. worked on the predecessor of, on DARPA's predecessor of the internet at like age 22 in the nuclear arms race. Wow. Working late at night, talking to people in Livermore from Los Alamos, <laughs> doing stuff. And so I think that was preparatory. So many things in his life. And he would say, he would, this was, would make him uncomfortable. He would say, this is true for all disciples yeah. of Jesus Christ, that in our lives, God gives us preparatory opportunities. And when we take advantage of them, they open the door to serve God in other distinctive ways. It makes such a difference, right? I, there's so many things going through my mind right now that I want to ask you about. One of them is, I'll see if I can develop this thought for a second, but this, it always feels like President Irene has broken through this higher level of discipleship. Hmm. For example... Uh, we we try to, in our prayers, count our blessings. And then he'll, he will say, I ask Heavenly Father every night, what blessings do I have that I'm not aware of? Mm. And then here's you, here are you, Rob, now telling me about this so such a cool thought of what does God prefer versus mm. what does God permit? Mm. Just such a, such a higher level of discipleship. I'm, I'm, I'm going to throw something else at you for a minute. Uh, and this comes from his son, Matt. And uh, he said that, you know, of course, he said, well, not surprising that that Kathleen, his wife, probably had more has had more of a profound effect on his life than any other mm. human. Mm -hmm. And he said, my mom was always telling my dad to go small. That was Matt's quote, to go small. Mm. You know, and you think of mm. going from Stanford to Rick's. And she, of course, she was the one, as you know, that was prompting him to leave Stanford and do something for Neil Maxwell, you know, to go small. But the idea was that she was so worried about money, I think, having come from money. Mm. She was worried mm. that, that she saw what that could do in, in a negative mm. way, but mm. also prestige. And so President Irene, one of the things in your book that was so eye-opening, and I love sharing it with our students, and you just talked about it a minute ago, how many job opportunities were coming to President Irene over the years from all these Fortune 500-type companies and educational arms like the University of Utah and Stanford and others who, you know, wanted him to be their president or the dean of the business school or whatever. But like President Oaks, he chooses every job that he chooses, he makes less money. Mm. So his career goes like, you know, from mm. from Stanford professor to Rick's college president to church commissioner of education. I'm sure every time he makes less. Mm. And I think Kathleen may have been in the background mm. you know, cheering for that. But do you have anything... Rob, to kind of say about that kind of, those kind of choices and wh wherever you want to go with that, how hard it would have been to go from the prestigious Stanford to the, at that time, the, I don't want to use the word podunk, but literally Rich, Rick's College was a junior college in a part of the country that most people didn't even know of, you know, um, whatever you want to say about all of that. 
Let me think of, let me share two. So let me see if I can respond simply to that. I think really critical question for all of us with a couple of answers. And the reason I think it's critical is sometimes even in the church, we get swept up culturally with be all you can be, the, 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 um, feeling like the more we accomplish, the truer the church is and the better we are. The, right. You know, that if, if uh, I succeed in sports or arts or anything else, that somehow validates the church or worse yet validates me. And, right. and so I think particularly for saints who are endowed with tremendous talent or capacity, whether it's on in any of these fronts, I think for them to realize their divine potential, they've got to be quite intentional about prioritizing their identifiers, which mm-hmm. President Nelson has taught us so much about. Right. I, I had a missionary, we had a missionary going home and she said, this is going to be interesting. Life as an illustrator and as a Mormon. And mm-hmm. I said, try flipping that. And she said, what do you mean? I said, try thinking of yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ who chooses to, uh, who happens to be an illustrator instead of an illustrator who happens to be a member of the church, and it will change everything. Oh, wow. President Nelson has has taught us the importance of prioritizing those identifiers. To realize our divine potential, any of us, regardless of what our natural gifts are, and frankly, regardless of what our natural dreams are, and some of, including some that are not inherently evil. That, that's what right. makes it more complicated. If right. your dream is to become a drug lord, you know, you just got to give that up, <laughs> right? But if your dream is to be the Nobel Prize winner, maybe you have to give it up. Maybe you don't. And right. so that's that's complicated. Um, but President Eyring always put first his identity as a child mm-hmm. of God, a child of the covenant, a disciple of Jesus Christ. Uh, so I, I don't know what, I don't think everybody has to make the same kinds of sacrifices, but my experience has been all disciples of Christ will be asked to make sacrifices. That if we're going to end up becoming who God wants us to become, we may need to give up some things our natural man and natural woman yearn to be. Yeah. And that leads to my second point. Um, I asked him about this one time because it became so evident to me. I said, you know, the, the... the pull of the world, the, the desire to get the praise of the world is just so naturally strong. You seem not, you seem not to be affected by that in the same way. Is that, how, how do you, it's, it seems almost like you've cut that umbilical cord that ties the rest of us <laughs> to the praise of the world. Right. And he said, no, you absolutely have to do that. Yeah. And it was clear that, that what he cared about was God's approval. So wow. one time he told the story. I think we've got this in the book. Well, I don't know. Maybe Henry didn't put it in the book because he couldn't believe his father really at age 22 had been given this responsibility. But he'd been given this amazing responsibility at Los Alamos with nuclear weapons and was asked, um, can we keep the arsenal safe and ready simultaneously? And he's presenting alone, no assistant, to a room full of generals and admirals. And his answer is no. Yeah. (laughs) And he just tells them no. It's clear they want the answer to be yes. And I said, like, wow, what what great preparation for doing hard things you'd have to do in the future. And he's like, no, that wasn't hard. That didn't take courage. Like, I'm going to lie about nuclear weapons. No, (laughs) that was easy. But that's seeing the world in a different way. Somebody who's thinking about how do I advance in my military career thinks, what do they want me to say? Will I offend them? Right. Somebody who's aligned with God. Yeah. And and draws their self-esteem from God's approval, they approach life differently. Yeah. So they're honored to have Neil A. Maxwell ask them to go head up at Podunk University 
right. college right. Uh, in southeastern Idaho more than if they'd been asked to be dean of the Stanford Business School or president of, of Stanford. Right, right. Because he knew that's what would please the Lord in his particular case. It's amazing. And by the way, if, if anyone's listening and hearing the word podunk, as we talk about uh, BYU-Idaho, Rob and I just learned in a meeting that the enrollment at BYU-Idaho now will supersede that of BYU, right? It's going to continue to grow. And In fact, he, he, he is pivotal in its history, and it is pivotal in his life. Yeah. Um, it's, it, uh, I mean, President Oak said, again, I can't remember if we got that quote in the book or not. I asked him about how his, President Eyring's time in Rexburg might have prepared him. And, uh, or I can't remember, but President Oaks clearly felt that was a preparatory experience because he had all this opportunity with brilliant elite minds at the Harvards and Stanfords of the world. Right. But here he got to work with wonderful, sometimes academic late bloomers and, and came to love it and embrace it. it. It, I think, changed the way he thought about education and members of the church and right. shaped him profoundly for the role he would play later in. And so we, we learned that BYU's, uh, Idaho's enrollment is, is growing and will exceed that. But we learned that Pathways will exceed all of it, all all of it combined. Uh, he doesn't get credit for that. I, I think of him as the godfather of pathway i hope yeah. i'm allowed to say that but that's he the founding father for sure his right his print he 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 conceived of the principles yeah that that led to that gave rise to pathway and so so wonderful to know you know one uh, another thought here rob and i've just always enjoyed learning about our apostles and prophets in the context of family men you know what mm-hmm. kind of husbands are they what kind of dads what kind of grandfathers are they what are your i don't know what your research led you to you know what conclusions you came to or observations from that vantage point but what are some thoughts you may have in that area of the family this he he was such a good father that frankly it stung a little bit to read in his journal this college president on a monday talk at length about all the things he did to prepare for the family home evening lesson that night. The visual aids that he, I mean, oh my gosh, it's, wow. it seems like it was the most important thing that he thought about or did that day. And I, that was not true for me as right. a father, you know, with a busy career. We were trying to juggle it all and, and fit that in at the end. But <laughs> somehow at a young age, he saw things with that clarity that comes from eternal an eternal sense of perspective right and he was investing heavily in what's the best way to teach my children these things tonight and then constantly bringing children along doing things mingling them in mixing them into his life right uh giving them every opportunity he could yeah i was gonna say i love that uh kind of along the lines of what you just shared that if he's going to play a sport or engage in something physical only if he can do it with his kids, if he can't. And I, same thing with stinging. I'm, I'm remembering uh, playing in a softball league when our kids were young, double headers every Thursday night. And, uh, and here's my wife with three kids in the stands going, mm. I'm not coming to any more of these games. These kids mm. should be in bed. Mm. And I'm like, mm. oh, well, shoot. And President Irene would say, oh, if they're not out with you on the field, you shouldn't be there. You yeah, know? that was and, his approach. Yeah. Wow. In- impressive, right? Well, anything else, Rob, any other takeaways from just having an in-depth look uh, into the life of this wonderful prophet, seer, and revelator that would be great for our audience to know about? 
You know, with modern biographies, there's a, a tendency to humanize and, and uh, to counteract the tendency to, to glorify you know, hagiography. But, um, and, and in fact, Henry was mindful of that and, and insisted on cutting some wonderful stories that would have made his father look too good. And I'm yeah. like, Henry, this is such a good yeah, story. Yeah, I want to know. Come, right? let's, let's leave this in. So, so we weren't trying to whitewash or sanitize his life at all. And, and I get the importance. I, I teach in my Foundations of the Restoration mm-hmm. class some principles for sifting through and, and making it clear we don't claim fall, infallibility for our prophets and apostles. Right. Uh, and, and they can have personal opinions and they can disagree on things and there's a process. It's an ongoing revelation, uh, restoration. I get all that. Yeah. So there are dangers to overclaiming. Mm-hmm. I, I think there may be bigger dangers to underclaiming. Yeah. I, I worry that... I, I worry that to be fashionable and fit in with the scholarly world today, sometimes we're, we're in an effort to humanize prop, people we sustain as prophet seers and, and revelators. We we minimize that. So I I came away with even greater regard for that mantle, um, mm. and pay even closer attention to what, in particular, people I sustain as prophet seers and revelators have to say. I've watched him change his mind. I've, I've, we, I, we asked him with Pathway, should we do it in English? Um, mm. Or should we offer it in like English, Spanish, Portuguese? I watched him think aloud for 15 minutes and change his mind Right. when we asked about that. So uh, it's not that I think you just ask him a question and you get a prophecy or prophetic answer every time. But he is deliberate. He is in tune. In fact, of all my interviews, I, now I can't even remember this guy, but this, there's, I, I think we've got it in the book. This guy's his friend at Stanford and, and uh, President Eyring's his bishop. Okay. And, but the guy eventually leaves the church, but they remain friends. Mm. And I interview him by phone. Wish I could have seen him in person. I've never interviewed a billionaire before, but this guy's a billionaire and had recently been to visit President Eyring. Oh, wow. It was the... F- the most interesting, compelling testimony I got from anybody because the guy was not an active member of the church and he's saying, he is, Hal is close to the source. I mean, Hal was always great, but wow, Hal has changed. It was amazing to meet with him. And for me, that was my experience. Uh, Not that he's perfect, but um, I give great weight particularly to things said in general conference by prophets, seers, and revelators, right. even more because of the time I was able to spend with President Eyring and the way I was able to see the Lord in the details of his life and in the details of the church. Right. These aren't just 15 men with some business savvy. We need to run the operational side of this organization. Right. These are the men through whom Jesus Christ leads his church today. Yeah. And, I, and I've had, Rob, a similar experience, not as profound as yours as you're in front of President Irene uh, interviewing him but as I've done uh, research and have been able to read the journals of and letters you know from several of our prophets and apostles I have always just walked away with a deeper testimony of Mm -hmm. who they are in real life and uh, it feels like you've had that experience too many times over I'm sure with President Irene and others and so thank you so much. This has been wonderful, insightful, and uh, so grateful that you would take some time to share some of these thoughts with us today, Rob. Thanks for, for uh, stopping by. Thanks so much. And may I just slip in one last thought that comes to my mind? Please do. As amazing as this experience was, you, you can get that same witness just by listening to reading 
and acting upon their teachings. Uh, most of us don't get, and I won't get with the others, that opportunity to sit at their knee. But we don't need that opportunity to know through the Spirit uh, that they're prophets, seers, and revelators. Thanks so much for letting me join you, Mark. Yeah, it's been great. Well, thank you, Rob. And to all those listening, we hope you have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>